Greetings, friends. It seems we are live once again for the Early Bird Podcast Sessions. Stefan Maya here with you. Edditsouls.com is the website. Will there be a tribulation? Will there be a tribulation? A branch discussion in regards to the worldview commonly known as premillennialism. And we will find ourselves going to our trusted friends over at apologeticspress.org for an article written there in regards to the um, discussion at hand. First and foremost, housekeeping, please consider subscribing, liking, sharing, giving a comment, and all those wonderful interactions and engagements allow for the Added Souls work to uh, reach the faithless, renew the fallen, and reinforce the faithful. And that is indeed important in our purpose and uh, uh, labor. Alongside here with the East Coast Church of Christ in New Brunswick, Canada, a beautiful, healthy, and growing church, by all means, contact us. Everything is open and public. We are not ashamed. You can Check out the .com, eastcoastchurchofchrist.com. We have a Facebook page as well. You can check that out, East Coast Church of Christ. And uh, if you do seek to support uh, the work that we are involved with through the Maya family here in this mission, please consider going to addedsouls.locals.com. It is free to sign up, but over there you can choose to support each month. And no amount is too low or too high. Everything goes towards the greater good of the kingdom. And there is also PayPal opportunities if you seek to donate at its souls at gmail.com. So let us put on the screen share the article at hand from our friends over at apologeticspress.org titled, Will There Be a Tribulation? And as in the fashion and tradition of our sessioned themes on Thursday in regards to topical discussion, I will share some of my studies and thoughts alongside our brethren and their works, if you will, and at times, most times, if you will, we are indeed uh, on the same uh, doctrinal path. We may vary here and there on opinion, matters of one's personal conscience and whatnots, but uh, as uh, pertaining to the doctrine of our Lord and Master, we do not breach the boundaries, and we remain in fellowship therein. Matthew 24, will there be a tribulation? Let's start reading together this article over at apologeticspress.org. Matthew 24, will there be a tribulation? The author therein, Dave Miller. And uh, the article in brief, of course, gives us a bit of a description here. The dispensational doctrine of the tribulation relies heavily on its interpretation of the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. This article constitutes an ex uh, exegetical analysis of those words. And that's what we want to have ourselves tuned into. An education for Christianity, pure Christianity, in the image revealed from the penmanship of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, the image of the Scriptures, the Christ therein and Christianity therein, is an educated religion. 
spite all the attempts from those who have since gone afar off, away, withdrawn from the true doctrine, it is indeed an educated religion. So this article here constitutes an exegetical analysis of those words, and we are wise to take that approach, that education. Editor's note, the following article is ex uh, excerpted from the book the End Times, just released by Apologetics Press, and I certainly do encourage you to purchase that book and to find the information therein, which points always to the main book, does it not? Of course, the Holy Bible. See the center spread for more information. Now the, in, uh, the article begins its, uh, its uh, knowledge. Quoting, Dispensationalists believe that Christ will come secretly and snatch away the saved at the rapture. And this, of course, is a commonly seen and understood worldview from a great many who claim Christianity under the umbrella of Christendom, more so of the evangelistic persuasion or the Pentecostal persuasion, more so accurately, taking them directly to heaven where they will experience judgment and receive their reward. They say, Revelation, and they always pluralize Revelation, Revelations. However, it is a singular revelation from the Father to the Son, to the Son, to John, and the disciples therein, if we are being accurate, to the Holy Word. They say, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 describe this heavenly scene, if you will. During this period, a seven-year tribulation will rage on earth as described in Revelation chapters 4 through 19. That will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon. Various passages are sprinkled here and there in this elaborate theory of the end times. But Matthew chapter 24 is perhaps the most prominent passage that is offered in an effort to prove an alleged tribulation. Hence, an exegesis, or exegesis, yeah, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly, obviously. Again, I remind you all, I'm a French-speaking individual born in the French community, speaking English words, trying to pronounce them properly. So, hence, an exegesis of this central proof text is necessitated. Absolutely. And the reader is urged to open a Bible and compare the text with what, follow, what, what follows. Yeah, don't take my word for it. Don't take Dave's word for it. Open the scriptures with your own independent mind, own independent accountability, a free will, the intellectual capability to open the scriptures with the independent accountability we've been blessed to have, and read it for yourself. Matthew 24. In Matthew 23... Jesus pronounced multiple woes upon the Jewish authorities of his day, the Pharisaical kind, in context. In verse 38, he declared that the Jews' house would be left to them desolate. Desolate. He then left the immediate confines of the temple complex, but paused at a distance with his disciples to continue the same line of thought. He directed their attention to the temple and said, quote, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be torn down. Matthew 24, 
verse 2. Such a declaration would have been shocking, obviously, if not horrifying, to these dyed-in-the-wool Jews that took great pride in the temple. They, no doubt, assumed that the temple where God's presence dwelt would last forever. So how dare Jesus, this man from where again, Nazareth, has anything good come from Nazareth? This man here, the son of a carpenter nonetheless, does he truly have any authority to speak such offensive language? Right? They would have taken great offense at their pride. Privately, the article continues, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. Number one, when will these things, that is the temple disruption, right, be? Well, that's a, I mean, it's a legitimate question from his disciples who must have truly wondered why is he saying these things? And when will, uh, when, if, if, if at all cause? Well, when will these things be? And number two, the other question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Almost three questions there, right? This, of course, from Matthew 24, verse 3. Now, please follow along and pay close attention as we move forward, always pointing to the inspired tome of literature, the poured-out pen of the Holy Spirit, the 66 books of the Holy Bible, more so in context here in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus proceeded to answer these questions in such a way as to distinguish between the destruction of the temple on one hand and the end of the world on the other. And he showed that they are completely separate events. And that is most important for us to reason with logically if we are going to defend the truth in an honorable court of law as fellow saints, servants, followers of our Lord and Master, the Savior, the King. Signs heralding the destruction of Jerusalem. Important portion of the article, we move forward, I quote, Jesus began his response by delineating numerous signs that would take place prior to the toppling of the temple. First, many would come claiming to be the Christ. So there is indeed a sign. Verse 5, Matthew chapter 24. Many would come claiming to be the Christ. As a matter of a fact, near the time of Jerusalem's fall in A.D. 70, many false messiahs arose, claiming to be the Christ. They would set themselves up as God on earth. Writing in the first century AD, Jewish priest, Pharisee, and historian Flavius Josephus reported that such messiahs became more numerous before the siege of the city. Inspired history revealed and uninspired history revealed. Shortly after the establishment of Christianity in A.D. 30, Acts chapter 2, Gamaliel, early 1st century Pharisee and leading authority in the Jewish Sanhedrin, also alluded to such figures during the same time period in Acts chapter 5, verses 34 through 37. Likewise, the Apostle Paul, writing in the mid-50s A.D., 
warned of false apostles of Christ, then circulating at that time in the first century, 2 Corinthians 11.13. Second, Jesus said that wars and rumors of wars would circulate, but the end is not yet. Verse 6, chapter 24, Matthew. Numerous wars were engaged in by Romans against various smaller nations as Rome continued her drive toward worldwide domination. At the same time, Rome had to cope constantly with revolt and rebellion among her conquered peoples. Josephus verified this fact. The end to which Jesus referred to in this verse applied to the end of the temple, not the end of the world. Let us reason together here. Third, number three, Jesus predicted that famine, pestilence, and earthquakes would occur, verse 7. It is documented historical fact that during the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, famines and earthquakes occurred. And here I, of course, give my thoughts and studies alongside. It is truly a devastating moment in history recorded that we do not fully, at times, more often than not, respect. Many times we're simply ignorant, not aware of how brutal and devastating the deep measurement of sorrow and violence that took place at this moment in our history, recorded history. There was a massive famine during the reign of Claudius Caesar before the destruction of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 11, verse 28, circa A.D. 47. An unusual number of great earthquakes occurred during the reign of Nero in A.D. 60 and 70. And I used to think it was one of those CD burner things, remember back in the 90s, I think, or early 2000s, where you could take MP3s and burn them on disc and you needed a program of sorts and it was called a Nero... All right. During the reign of Nero in AD 60-70, I'm not, of course, claiming or alluding to any conspiracies here. Just the simple fact that they call their <laughs> they call their program or their product and service Nero because it burned. Okay. Anyways, so the reign of Nero in AD 60-60 through 70, destroying many cities of Asia Minor. Remember, the book of Revelation wrote to the seven churches in Asia. Okay, the occurrence of these signs between the times of Jesus' word, A.D. 30, and the destruction, A.D. 70, would be interpreted by those who heard him articulate them as the direct fulfillment of Jesus' statements. But if Jesus' words apply to a yet future event, and reason with us here, his words make no sense for there have been earthquakes and famines all over the world for the last 2,000 years. And the occurrence of them today is no sign at all. Now, please pay attention. This information, which is fact-driven in a logical, reasonable format, so as to be defendable or explainable in a court of law, an honorable court of law, listen, it will challenge your thoughts. It will challenge your worldview. It will challenge your religious affiliations, the ancestral traditions given to you through these religious traditions. It may bring into question the things you were taught by mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, 
uncles and aunts, cousins perhaps, siblings, friends, neighbors, co-workers. And they, in turn, might have been deceived religiously, just as we were. It challenges our thoughts to think. It's always legal to think when it comes to God's privilege and freedom through his son. So utilize that blessing and think. Do not allow your um, emotions to get the best of you in offense, which would trigger you to withdraw and remove yourself and therefore ad hominem and attack. Just reason with the information. Let it soak in. Meditate on it first and foremost and look into it for yourself. And if you have a humble heart, you will see that the truth certainly shall set us free. Okay, we continue this information always pointing to the historical inspiration revealed in the scriptures and also for credible justification from the unbeliever's perspective. This information also revealed by uninspired history and pen from those who were not friendly to Christianity, my dear friends. Okay, let's keep going. His words make no sense, for there have been earthquakes and famines all over the world for the last 2,000 years, and the occurrence of them today is no sign at all. We, can, we move forward in the article here from our dear friends over at apologeticspress.org. The fact is that earthquakes could not have been intended by God to be a sign of the end of the world. Some 500,000 earthquakes are detectable in the world each year, with only 100,000 of those being felt. Many go undetected because they hit remote areas or have very small magnitudes. Nor are the number of earthquakes increasing. The Comcat Earthquake Catalog contains an increasing number of earthquakes in recent years, not because there are more earthquakes, but because there are more seismic instruments and they are able to record more earthquakes. Since earthquakes have been fairly constant for the last 2,000 years and occur on a daily basis, they would be completely useless in attempting to recognize the end of the world. In other words, they are not to be utilized as a tool to describe a certain specific end-of-the-world moment. However, if Jesus intended them to be immediate signs, therein, keyword, immediate signs, contemporaneous with the first century, of course, they would have served a useful purpose. See, when we isolate the timeline, things begin to have more sense to it. Context. Context. From A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, each time an earthquake occurred, the disciples would have been instantly reminded of Jesus' prediction and its impending fulfillment. Information written to the individuals of the first century, correct? For the fulfillment of all things confirmed in the first century. Fourth, number four. Jesus further stated that the apostles would be hated, persecuted, and even murdered. Verse 9. As it turned out, Peter, Paul, James, Acts 12, 2, and James the less were all put to death before the destruction of Jerusalem. 
Jesus said that false prophets would arise, many Christians would falter, and evil would abound. Verses 10 through 13. As the pressure of persecution increased during the early decades of Christianity, so the faith of many decreased. Sound familiar? Just because something has occurred in the first century was written about and occurred and confirmed in the first century does not mean it does not hold practical application to our day and age this very hour. It most certainly does. Though not written to us, literally, physically, directly to us, certainly written for us. So the faith of many decreased. You know, an inventor... And let me share an illustration that comes to my mind impromptu. An inventor, the first individual to invent a wrench. He invented the wrench for his immediate necessities. Did he not? Well, of course he did. He thought in, he thought in his mind, if I create this object and I make it sturdy enough, it will do the job necessary to uh, 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 help the, the issue at hand in his direct context. However, the wrench, of course, moves forward in time and is useful for all generations. It is during such turmoil that, or let me back up here in the article I missed, apostasy became prevalent. It is during such turmoil that false teachers make their mark by capitalizing on spiritual confusion. Oh, they love it, don't they? They do so with spiritual confusion, doubt, and weakness. And you can compare that information, of course, with Matthew 7, 15, Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, 1 Timothy 4, 1, and 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, for scriptural evidence rightly handled. And they certainly do. False teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, these types whose selfish ambitions cause all sorts of chaos, division, and uh, turmoil, uh, love spiritual confusion. They can become these self-made virtuous bastions of scholarly right, which will persuade you if you have a weakness, a blind spot, to follow them and their ego and their pride, and they will control you, and they will control all aspects of your life and thoughts. And if you disagree with them at any time or seek to become wise to their deceiving, manipulative ways, they will condemn you. And I assure you, the devil knows how to quote book, chapter, and verse, and he has quite the cunning ability to do so to persuade you that he's a fine, upstanding gospel preacher filled with evangelistic uh, uh, courage, and he's sound in the faith. Many saints fell prey and were recruited and devoured by these diatrophic, pharisaical kinds. And in these times of confusion, they love, they love to peruse and infiltrate local congregations and families and destroy and destruction and chaos. They did, it's what they breed on, and they did it in the first century. So the information was clearly written for those of the first century to recognize these hostilities, to raise awareness and be ready and though happening to them in the first century, is not this information for us as well, as we seem to be repeating ourselves time and time again? Well, certainly we have the information of the Holy Spirit. He wrote a book. 
And we can read these words and we can understand them. We move forward now again in the article. Fifth, number five, Jesus said that the gospel would be preached in all the world. Verse 14, it is also historical fact that the gospel was preached to all the world prior to the A.D. 70 destruction of Jerusalem. Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, A.D. 58, and said their faith was spoken, quote, throughout the whole world. Romans 1.8, I think he meant what he said there. I think what he said he meant. I think that is true. I think that is inspired. So when Paul wrote to the Church of Christ at Colossae, the church that belongs to Jesus Christ in Colossae, A.D. 62, the gospel was, quote, bearing fruit and increasing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, in the entire world, which can only happen if the seed is first sown, quote, in all the world. Right? This is, we can understand this. We are simple people, blue-collar, right? Not too complicated. We can understand this. In fact, Paul flatly stated that the gospel had been preached, quote, to every creature which is under heaven, or, quote, in all creation under heaven, Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, uh, 23 as so in... Uh, um, given by the King James Virgin, 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 <laughs> King James Virgin, the KGV, the King James Version, and the New American Standard uh, Bible. The point is clear. The gospel was preached to the world prior to AD 70, as Jesus predicted. It, it's just an objective, absolute statement of reality. It's a fact, right? We move forward in the article from our dear friends over at ApologeticsPress.org titled, The Fulfillment of the Signs Brought the End. And before moving forward, please consider subscribing, liking, sharing, giving a comment. All these wonderful things help us to reach the faithless, renew the fallen, and reinforce the faithful. And if you are willing and able, please consider participating in the wonderful works of the Added Souls Ministry, by signing up to addedsouls.locals.com. You can support monthly over there, and no amount is too low or too high. You can donate through PayPal, addedsouls at gmail.com. You want to get a hold of us? By all means, contact us. We can have a video chat, a phone conversation. If you need a physical address, a physical address can be produced to you. Thank you so much for all of you who do support we pray for you. We are most humbled that you would see it fit to find the substance and value of this work. We move forward. The fulfillment of the signs brought the end. Once all these signs, in other words, false Christ, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, death of the apostles, the apostasy of many, the rise of false prophets, and worldwide proclamation of the gospel came to pass, Jesus said the, quote, end would come. Verse 14. That is the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, the end of formal Judaism, and the end of the Old Testament economy would occur. That's important information to hold, truthful information to hold. It greatly amplifies, cultivates, and facilitates 
nourishment for our trust in Christ this hour, this day, our faith. Jesus said this end would come about with the presence of the, quote, abomination of desolation. And of course, here in parentheses, in regards to the economy would occur, the New Testament, or the end of the Old Testament economy would occur, figure one is going to show us that. So Jesus said this end would come about with the presence of the abomination of desolation in the holy place, verse 15. He applied Daniel 9, 27. And to that end, quite interestingly, for us laymen, peasants, citizens of the kingdom here, if you read Daniel and you read Revelation and language that is spoken here in Matthew 24, it's truly fascinating, greatly, greatly interesting how there seems to be a common theme with the apocalyptic language and the judgment theme therein. It's, it's, it's very interesting. So he applied Daniel 9.27 to the presence of the Roman army and its ruthless military commander at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And you can compare that with Luke 21.20. And here is figure one. And you can see here in, a, in, a, in a, 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 a wonderful visual, if you will, you have three, or you have yourself a box. It says figure one, signs of the end. And in this box, box, you have three modules. And on the far left here from what I am looking at through my computer screen, it says the signs. And in this module, you have false Christ, wars, rumors, famines, earthquakes, persecution, apostles, deaths, apostasy, false prophets, gospel to the world. And in, it, it, it then has an arrow pointing towards the next module and going through the next module, which is the end. Then the end of will come, and then it pushes its way to the third module at the far right on, on my here uh, visual on my computer screen, it says Jerusalem, temple, formal Judaism, and Old Testament economy. So it, in, in the uh, uh, figure here, if you will, is uh, to show us the simplicity or make it more so simple and understandable uh, to what the scriptures, of course, plainly teach. Consequently, the article continues, Consequently, Jesus urged the faithful in Judea to, quote, flee into the mountains, verse 16. History records a remarkable factor concerning the fall of Jerusalem. With the approach of A.D. 70, Jewish Christians took the invasion of the Roman armies as the appointed sign which Christ had given. Upon seeing the Roman military machine in full march, Jewish Christians dropped everything and made their escape to Pella, P-E-L-L-A, a village east of the Jordan in Perea, Perea, about 15 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. Truly fascinating. Thus, while God was bringing due wrath upon unbelieving Jews, he made provision for those Jews who had become Christians to escape. Observe in bold lettering here. Observe. If this passage refers to the rapture, and the saved were about to be removed to heaven, it would have been superfluous for Jesus to tell them to flee the city. Reason with the information. Do not allow emotional offense to overwhelm you away from self-control. Independent thought you are blessed with. Reason with it.
You may have been born and raised with a religious worldview that has great deficiencies and is no longer an asset in your life, but more so a liability eternally. Reason with the information. Again, back to the article pointing us to scriptural principle. If this passage refers to the rapture, as is so argued by those of the pre-millennialist worldview, if this passage refers to the rapture and the saved were about to be removed to heaven, it would have been superfluous for Jesus to tell them to flee the city. Completely useless and also foolish on the part of Christ. Deceiving, perhaps at best. Jesus pronounced woe on those who, in facing the hardships that would occur, would have the added difficulties associated with pregnancy, being with child, and protecting and nursing children, especially if it occurred in winter or on the Sabbath. Verses 19 and 20 from chapter 24, the Gospel of Matthew. Bearing and caring for children is a difficult task in of itself. But such functions become incredibly difficult when one is, quote, on the run. We can understand that, certainly. It is beneficial more so to facilitate a location geographically uh, sound for childbearing, where there is privilege and freedom and security, other than being found in a location of turmoil, uncertainties, and war at your door each day. One would say it's not time to have a child in this kind of condition. Likewise, escape from the onslaught of a merciless military force would be complicated by the conditions that accompany the wintertime. The cold and hunger would constitute hardship on children and adults alike, and friends again pointing to the severity of that moment in our recorded history, and how devastating and sorrowful and violent it was. The allusion to the Sabbath refers to the fact that Jewish authorities would still be enforcing observance of the Sabbath with closed city gates. Nehemiah 13, verse 19. Thus, these two verses deal with hindrances to flight from the Roman besiegement of Jerusalem. Jesus further stated that, quote, great tribulation would be associated with these events comparably worse than at any time and resulting in the loss of many lives. Verses 21 and 22. We who live subsequent to AD 70 have difficulty fathoming the magnitude of the tribulation experienced during the destruction of Jerusalem. This far exceeds, my dear friends, turning on the corrupt propaganda, quote-unquote, news, telling us of the doom and gloom of our current society and the fear that it is mongering. This, this goes beyond this scope. This is in the deep throes of violence and devastation and famine to the extent in where human beings turn into animals against each other. It is gruesome. It is morbid. It is descriptively one of the most horrific moments to be recorded in modern millennia. At that time, hundreds of thousands of Jews were crowded together from all over the world to observe Passover. The mass misery that resulted from the Roman siege, which lasted five months, was extensive. 
Interestingly, Josephus, an eyewitness, alluded to the atrocity in words reminiscent of Jesus' own words, quote, Neither did any other city suffer such miseries from the beginning of the world. And that's a strong, poignant statement, yet true to its uh, prophetic confirmation. We continue to read the phrase, quote, nor ever shall be, shows that Jesus had in mind a time near his own day with much time to come after the event. If he was alluding to some period near the end of time, parentheses, as per dispensationalism, he would not have added such words since there would be no future time left for such an occurrence. God could have easily permitted every single Jew to be wiped from the face of the earth. But for the sake of his church, parentheses, which included converted Jews, the period of tribulation was shortened. Verse 22. Next, Jesus warned that during the period leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, false Christs and false prophets would come forward and display magical tricks. Magical tricks to deceive people into thinking they were authentic representatives of God. Verses 23 through 26. And this brings to my thought and studies, of course, where Christ speaks of uh, the instance where many of these would claim utilizing his name with the practices they held. Well, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this and that in your name? And what did Christ say to them? I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You see, in the first century, you had religious leaders claiming to have supernatural powers, but they did not. And when Christ came on the location to fulfill his ministry and the redemptive plan of ma uh, salvation for mankind, he did have supernatural abilities. He could control the weather. He could raise the dead. He could cast out demons. He could make whole the lame. He could cure the sick. He had insight within the mind of a man in which none of us have. And they hated him for it. How dare he be authentic, genuine, <laughs> taking away our influence on the minds of the people? Interesting, is it not? We go back now. When people face severe and intense disruption to their lives, they tend to become easy prey for con men and charlatans who seek to exploit the hardships and vulnerabilities of others. Man, isn't that true? And that is still the case today. Today, we still have wolves in sheep's clothing. We still have diatrophies. We still have these individuals who creep in unnoticed among us titled as brothers, as Christians, some within the positions of leadership as elders, as evangelists, as preachers, and now today in our common tongue as podcasters. They certainly are of this manner, and they are divisive. Divisive brutes filled with pride. Well, these things were taking place in the first century, and when you live in fear, you are easily captivated by their intimidation, their flattery. It is indeed the strategy of the devil and his influence, even if we look at the scope of sociopolitical affairs in our current nations who have since fallen 
pray to these types, these tyrants, these dictators? Jesus warned of this phenomenon. The article continues. Jesus warned, uh, war, uh, warned of this phenomenon as the time for Jerusalem's destruction grew nearer. When any individuals, even in our own day, seek to seduce people into believing that the Lord's final coming is imminent, Jesus says, quote, don't believe it. Don't believe it. You can compare that with verse 26. Well, why? Well, because when Jesus comes at the end of time, everyone will know it. Not just a selected few here and there or pockets of... Inf no, no, no. Listen. Everyone will know it. There will be no time to take out the phone and have yourself a selfie or a quick YouTube video or an upload or anything of that. No, no, no. None of those things. Everyone will know it. The second coming will be as visible and as evident as a blinding flash of lightning that covers the entire sky. Verse 27. In contrast with the ultimate return of Jesus, the coming of Jesus in judgment on Jerusalem would be discernible on very different grounds. Quote, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Verse 28, typically classified as a type of vulture due to its uh, carry-on feeder traits, the eagle was the symbol of Roman power. It was carried by the different units of the Roman army, wherever Roman authority was being exerted. The contemporaries were readily familiar with this fact. Thus, in AD 70, the Roman vultures swarmed over Jerusalem and devoured the carcass of apostate Judaism. That's just truly... An, uh Fascinating. Jesus then resorted to the use of several highly figurative phrases which are based upon Old Testament apocalyptic language. Quote, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Verse 29. And I still remember back in 2011 when I chose to follow Jesus. My wife and I, we chose to make a complete life change. And it was a truly, uh, how should I say, um, life-changing moment for us as we chose to try to follow Jesus and understand what he was saying and understand what the Bible was saying. And I would make my way to this portion of scripture. And I was, man, I was scared. I didn't know if it was to be true or not, because for a long time, I just thought the Bible was a book of myth and wasn't true at all. And then I'm slowly recognizing and studying and finding out that, wow, no, no, there's something more to this book than I thought. And I'm starting to believe the words in the book because the evidence is just so overwhelming. I have, I have to believe it. I mean, it's, 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 I'd be dishonest not to. And I'm starting to believe it, but I don't fully understand what's said everywhere is in all the locations of the Bible yet. And I'm, I'm finding myself in this location reading these words. And I'm like, what do you mean the sun will be darkened and the moon shall not give her life and the, and, and the stars will far from, fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken? Oh man, that doesn't sound very good at all. That sounds quite fearful. With time and study in a reasonable, humble heart, you begin to rightly handle the text and understand what is being said and the nature of the language. 
apocalyptic. Oh, okay, so it has a function, it has a purpose. It is designated for its situation in the holy text. Anyways, a bit of my thoughts there with you, but we move forward in the article from our dear friends over at apologeticspress.org, and it says the phrase, quote, after the tribulation of those days. The phrase after the tribulation of those days means after the horrible events that occurred during the siege of the city, which history records began on August 10th, AD 70, and lasted some two months. In that short period, 1.1 million died in unspeakable anguish, and 97,000 were taken as slaves. After the tribulation of the siege, the final destruction occurred. Isn't that something? The English reader and the Western mind have difficulty conceptualizing such extravagant expressions. The temptation is to take the words literally, but Jesus merely did what many of the Old Testament prophets did when they announced the, dis uh, the destruction of cities and countries in symbolic apocalyptic imagery. All one need do is read Isaiah 13 to see that Jesus was incorporating terminology reminiscent of the description of the destruction of Babylon recorded in Isaiah 13, where the language referred to the military onslaught of the Medes in the 6th century BC. And interestingly enough, again, in the book of Revelation, Babylon is known figuratively as the Roman Empire. Medes in the 6th century BC that brought about the downfall of the Babylonian Empire. And here we see figure number two. We have ourselves the figure right figure two and its opening statement says jesus used apocalyptic slash figurative language to refer to the destruction of jerusalem in a.d 70 and you have yourself two modules one on the left one on the right and the one on the on the left has isaiah 13 verse 6 says the day of the lord is near and the other module you have matthew 14 and what's going to happen here is going to be a comparative look to rightly handle the text. So on the left, you have the day of the Lord is near with Isaiah. And on the right, you have it is near at the doors in verse 33 of Matthew 24. On the left with Isaiah, you have the stars, the constellations will not give light. And on the right with Matthew, you have the stars shall fall from heaven. Each verse here being compared, verse 10 with Isaiah, verse 29 with Matthew. Verse 10 with Isaiah, rising sun will be darkened. Verse 29 with Matthew, the sun shall be darkened. Verse 10 with Isaiah, the moon will not give its light. Verse 29 with Matthew of chapter 24, the moon shall not give her light. Verse 13 of chapter 13 in Isaiah, I will shake the heavens. Matthew 24, verse 29, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. You'd have to deliberately be dishonest to say there's not a connection here. Similarly, Isaiah depicted the destruction of Edom in terminology that spoke of the cosmos being dissolved and the sky rolling up like a scroll. Chapter 34, verse 4. Ezekiel portrayed the fate of Egypt in terms of the darkening of the stars, moon, and sun. In chapter 32, verse 7. There is no question that such language is highly figurative hyperbolic, and designed to instill an impression of great calamity. To create an effect 
in the mind of the hearer, but not intended to be taken literally. If God can discuss the overthrow of Babylon, Egypt, and Edom in such flamboyant, dramatic terminology, surely he can do the same when discussing the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, without us jumping to the conclusion that he was referring to the end of time. As per the perspective of premillennialism, or as described here also in a branch of or um, designation of dispensationalism, at this point would, quote, appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, verse 30. In other words, looking again at verse 29, the darkening of the Jewish temple, the shaking up of the Jewish commonwealth, and the fall of of Jewish authority through the instrumentality of imperial Rome was, quote, pay attention, the sign or signal that Christ had come in judgment on Israel. Now we must remember they crucified the Christ, the Son of God, and though this was indeed a um, fulfillment for the redemption of mankind, and God was pleased with this pure sacrifice, his Son, he was also quite angry that they murdered his son, that the people and culture who should have embraced the Messiahship of Jesus, God on earth, they should have embraced him, they should have repented and followed, they did not. They neglected, they rejected, they abandoned, they shunned, they persecuted they spat upon, they whipped, they kicked, they crucified. They gave their own kind to the hand of the young of the godless to be nailed to a Roman tree. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the liaison from man to the Father. They murdered. We all murdered in spiritual principle through our lawlessness. There had to be consequence. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The sign or signal that Christ had come in judgment on Israel. He was the one responsible for the misery that would enshroud the Jewish nation. Jesus had done exactly what he had told Caiaphas. He would, he, uh, Jesus had done exactly what he had told Caiaphas he could expect to witness personally. Quote, the Son of Man is coming in the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26 64. Jews knew that such language was completely normal when describing God's execution of wrath in history. When God punished Egypt in the long ago, he, quote, rode on a swift cloud into Egypt. You see that? Isaiah 19.1. A graphically appropriate way to envision God's vengeance in time in history. Next. Angels would go forth with a great trumpet sound and gather the elect, verse 31. Historians report that once Jewish opposition to Christianity, parentheses, reflected throughout the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles. So, well, again, we begin. Historians report that once Jewish opposition to Christianity was removed in A.D. 70, the 
true nation of God. In other words, the church that belongs to Christ, the holy nation, 1 Peter 2, 9, the Christian elect, began to experience unparalleled effectiveness. The sound of the gospel trumpet was heard more clearly than ever before. The word for, quote, angel, angelos, is the normal Greek word for messenger. And that is now, of course, how I read the text. When I see the word angel, I read messenger. It allows us to have a more sober, self-controlled mind within the theme and context of the portion of Scripture we are reading in a exegetical manner. It is used in the New Testament to refer both to angelic visitors from heaven, Matthew 4, 6, 1, 1, 28, 2, Mark 1, 12, Luke 16, 22, Galatians 3, 19, for reference, of course, as well as human messengers, Matthew eleven ten, Luke 7, 24, 27, 9, 52, James 2, 25. In this passage, it refers to the emissaries, emissaries, I should say more so pronounced, emissaries of the gospel who, by means of the preached word, gathered individuals into the elect fold from all over the world. Such phraseology is reminiscent of the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, in which every 50th year the believing community sounded a ram's horn all through the land and proclaimed the year as a year of release or liberation. Jesus next uttered a brief parable about a fig tree, verse 32 and 33. Tender branches and new leaves on a fig tree function as signs, signals that summer is near. Likewise, the signs that Jesus uh, delineated pinpointed the time when Jerusalem was to be destroyed. Once faithful disciples began to observe the unfolding of these signs, they would realize that the city was on the verge of being besieged by the Roman armies. They could then, quote, look for their redemption, Luke twenty-one twenty-eight. In other words, act upon their providentially prearranged escape plan and receive deliverance from the Romans and potential future persecutions of Jewish authority. You see how that information was useful to the faithful? The repetition of the second person plural pronoun is further proof that Jesus was referring to, quote, his own generation, not a generation that was centuries in the future. Quote, so you also, when you see, verse 33. Respect the context. Who is speaking and to whom is he speaking to? These are matters of prophecy fulfilled and confirmed in the first century, and the information given to the faithful was quite useful and kind to them, so as to be delivered from the onslaught of violence that was going to besiege Jerusalem. Jesus ended his response to the first question asked by his disciples with these words, or with the words, quote, This generation shall not pass till all these things are fulfilled. Verse 34. You have to go through great, dishonest, deceptive word salads to try and make that mean something different than it so clearly states. And I had to come to terms with the logic, and so must all who are honest and humble. The generation to whom he was addressing, 
himself would still be living when, quote, all these things would occur. Thus, every single sign that Jesus pinpointed would occur during that generation. Some, however, in an attempt to apply Jesus' words to the premillennial framework and the end of time, suggest that the Greek word for, quote, generation, genea, may also be translated as race, in which case Jesus was simply saying that the Jewish race would not pass out of existence before all these things happened to them. But if this allegation is correct, then Jesus is put in the position of telling the Jews what would happen to their race, and then saying that their race would not pass away until everything that was going to happen to their race happened. An absurdly redundant notion. Why would God declare a group's faith, or not faith, F-A-I-T-H, but fate, F-A-T-E, why would God declare a group's F-A-T-E, fate, and then assure the group that they would still be around to suffer that fate? Obviously, God would never have told them the, specific, uh, the, the specifics of their fate if they were not going to be present to experience those specifics. The fact of the matter is that the word, quote, generation is used 13 times in the Gospel of Matthew and always designates those who are living at a particular point in time comparable to modern American expressions like baby boomers and Generation X or Gen X. In fact, in Matthew 23, verse 36 and 39 through 39, where the context is the same as Matthew 24, Jesus spoke of the contemporary population of Jerusalem as the, quote, generation that he had in mind, the one that he sought to, quote, gather under his wings and those or whose house would be, quote, left desolate. And here a visual as we see figure three. Figure 3 has several modules and several locations and branch departments to describe what is taking place. I will leave that to you if you go to apologeticspress.org and you look up this article. Will there be a tribulation? And you will find figure 3 there. And those watching visual can see it on the screen just briefly. But as you can see, again, it is revealing the, uh, the evidence of the fact so we move forward in the article to this location now called Transition. Transition. No signs heralding the second coming. Before doing so, please consider subscribing, liking, sharing, giving a comment. It helps the Added Souls ministry to uh, promote and proclaim the gospel so as to reach the faithless, to renew the fallen, and to reinforce the faithful. You can support this work. Sign up to addedsouls.locals.com. You can support there monthly. No amount is too low or too high. It greatly helps this uh, work move forward. So please consider that. There's also the PayPal option, addedsouls at gmail.com. And you can contact me, of course, for a conversation or questions or concerns, and having a physical address. I labor alongside the East Coast Church of Christ over here in New Brunswick, Canada. The East Coast Church of Christ. You can check out the .com, and you can check out the Facebook page. We go back to our friends over at apologeticspress.org, and the section of the article 
titled Transition, No Signs Heralding the Second Coming. Verse 35 functions as a transition verse, placing closure on Jesus' answer to the disciples' first question. Remember, we must keep things organized. Beginning in verse 36, Jesus turned his attention to dealing with the disciples' second question. He emphatically disguised, or sorry, distinguished. He emphatically distinguished between the destruction of Jerusalem, which he had been discussing, and the end of the world or second coming. Even if the disciples had not asked about, quote, the end of the world, it would have been appropriate for Jesus to have dealt with the matter since he would not want the two to be confused. So he alluded to that day. In other words, the day heaven and earth will pass away, verse 35. The world will end and Christ would come again, verse 3. Jesus went out of his way to stress the total absence of signs signaling the end of the world and the second coming. He declared that his final coming would be comparable to the deluge of Noah's day, verse 37, in that it would or it will be totally unexpected. Totally unexpected. Right up to the very day that Noah and his family entered the ark, life was going on as usual. No signs. Jesus said farmers will be in the field as usual, verse 40. Women will be involved in their activities as usual, verse 41. Jesus even likened the unexpected nature of his final coming to the exploits of a thief, verse 43. Both Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, and Peter, 2 Peter 3.10, repeat this analogy. As the coming of a thief in the night is preceded by absolutely no signs, so the final coming of Jesus will be preceded by absolutely no signals. This is an objective, absolute standard of reality revealed by the penmanship of the Holy Spirit, and you and I are wise to receive the information and to reason with it. It is quite challenging to a great many of us who were born and raised in various traditional religious worldviews that would be contrary to the truth which sets us free from the bondage and myth and lies of false religious worldviews. We continue in the article, thus verses 36 through 51, as well as the entirety of chapter 25, refer to the end of time and the second coming. Jesus' first point was that whereas those who give proper heed to the signs can, uh, can pinpoint the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, no one can pinpoint the day of Christ's return. Why? Why is that the case? Good question. Absolutely no signs will occur to alert people to the second coming. Verses 37 through 39 clearly show that life on this earth will be going on as it always has with, quote, business as usual. The time of Jesus' ultimate return is unpredictable and will be totally unexpected, unaccompanied by signs to warn of its approach. And if we reason with the nature of God, we can understand why he would not allow us, permit us, to know the day of his return. So the article in summary finishes off here and says, I quote, It is not uncommon 
to hear people discussing the end of time and delineating the signs that they say are proof that Christ's return is imminent. When wars and rumors, rumors of wars and earthquakes and various political military events that one observes in the news occur, they are quick to connect those occurrences with their convictions that Christ is about to return. They claim to be representing the Bible in their calculations and forecasts, even though, to date, every attempt to pinpoint the date of Christ's return has failed miserably. The only hope of the entire world is to render obedience to the written revelation of the Bible. Matthew 24, 46. Noah preached, apparently for many years, in hopes of alerting the world's population to the coming judgment upon them. They refused to listen and amend their ways. Likewise, the only tip-off available today is the gospel of Jesus Christ that instructs every accountable individual what to do to be right with God. And on my own personal study, I come to mind a verse or a section portion of Scripture where, of course, the Pharisaical kind, the religious leaders of the day, were trying to test Jesus and asking him, give us a sign. <laughs> he had already given them all the signs they needed to see. He had the miraculous power to confirm his word. They saw that, they witnessed that, yet still they challenged him to see signs. And what was his word? No sign shall be given to you. But Jonah, in other words, repentance is the only thing now left for you to do. Change your mind. Repent. When one brings, back to the article here, when one brings one's life into compliance with those directives, signs by which the uh, to anticipate the return of Christ are completely superfluous. As Jesus emphasized, watch therefore. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, Matthew 24, 42. We don't know it. It could be in an hour from now. It could be in a thousand years. It could be in a million years. It could be before the end of this session. We don't know. So we are wise to take the words of our Lord and Master and do what is right. Motivated by the right Heart, of course, we keep reading. In fact, the signs preceding the destruction of Jerusalem were pinpointed for Christian Jews rather than for unbelieving Jews. The signs served the purpose of alerting Christians to enact the means of safety and escape from physical threat posed by the Romans. The signs did not serve the purpose of achieving spiritual salvation. Signs from God were never intended to serve such a purpose. When Christ performed a miracle, the miracle was not salvation in of itself. It was to point a confirmation of the word he spoke, which gave instruction, leading us of free will to obey or disobey. Back to the article. Even so, today, no signs are needed to, one, number one, provide instructions to Christians so they can avoid physical harm from persecutors. Number two, nor are they needed to provide spiritual salvation for non-Christians, which can only be attained via obedience to the message of the gospel, Romans 1.16. To repeat, the signs given by Jesus in Matthew 24 enabled Christians to avoid death at the hands of the Romans. No signs have been given by Jesus by which Christians today can evade future physical danger. When studied carefully in context and in light of history, verses in Matthew 24 that dispensationalists claim referred to the end times are seen to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. Without a doubt, there will be tribulation in the world. 
Christians are, in fact, assured of such, even as Paul explained to the Christians in the cities of Galatia, quote, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22, compared with 2 Timothy 3.12 and John 16.33, Christians always have and always will endure tribulation, but there will be no future period of tribulation from which saints will be exempt as the dispensationalists describe. The world may well experience World War III. Horrible atrocities may well be unleashed upon humanity but such future events will in no way result as the fulfillment of biblical teaching. The Bible simply does not teach that there will be a future seven-year tribulation on earth that will culminate in a battle of Armageddon. Such is a myth. It is a religious uh, concoction brewed by the minds of one's own image to Christianity. In other words, Men have created Christianity in their own image, which, of course, Galatians chapter 1, Paul would call accursed. In context, they were seeking to infiltrate Christianity with Judaism all over again and enforce not only certain Old uh, Testament laws, but also their own personal ordinances and things of the like. Uh, we are wise, of course, to pay attention to rightly handled scripture and information. And that brings an end to this article at hand. And um, it also brings forth the opportunity for us to seek salvation in Jesus Christ. Do not fear those who peddle fear-mongering devices. Fear God and understand His Word. His Word is understandable, and it certainly reveals the path to salvation through Christ. The uniqueness of his church, the uniqueness of our common salvation, the manner in which he has commanded our worship towards him, and the necessity to practice discipline within one of his local assemblies to keep his bride pure, all these things are what is important. Perhaps information you are hearing and studying and reading in the scriptures bring you to a change of thought, a repentance. In the first century, those who sought to be saved by the Christ needed to believe in Jesus, John 3.16. And organically, spiritually, all who believe came to confess Christ as their Lord and Master, the Son of God, they would, out of necessity in their belief, change their thoughts, their worldview, repentance. They would want to go away from what was sinful, perhaps erroneous religious beliefs that masqueraded themselves in a certain way. Perhaps lawless practices, heathen or pagan in nature. They changed the way they thought, and it, in, in action, changed the way they lived. This was a, a, a necessary obedience to the command in which God gave to repent. And if you believe in Jesus, you will. And of course, this qualified them, as John chapter 1 would reveal. It qualified the repentant believer 
who chose to confess Christ as the Son of God, his Lord and Master, they qualified to call upon the name of our Lord and be immersed, plunged, dipped, submerged, buried, clothed with Jesus Christ. And such indeed is an act of submissiveness to humbly submit to be saved by grace through faith, not of our own boastful works, but to give our lives to the Christ. He will wash away our sins, Acts 22.16, if we call upon his name. John Smith, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of mankind? Yes, I do. Then you qualify. We call upon the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as you are immersed for the forgiveness of your sins. And he will add you as a legal citizen to his kingdom, his church. This is the objective, absolute truth of rightly handled scripture, the penmanship of the Holy Spirit. And it is available to all who are independently accountable with the intellectual capability of reasoning and believing. And that indeed is a powerful and wonderful, freely given gift. Only a fool would reject that information. I was a fool for many, many years, decades. I didn't want to hear none of it. Didn't believe in none of that. To me, that was all garbage. The Christ has since changed our hearts. Friends, please consider... If you find substance and value in these sessions, please consider signing up to addedsouls.locals.com. Please consider doing that. You can support through that venue. No amount is too low or too high. You can donate through PayPal, addedsouls at gmail.com. Our website, addedsouls.com. And we, the Maya family, labor alongside the East Coast Church of Christ over here in New Brunswick, Canada. And you can check out the .com, and you can check out the Facebook page. You are appreciated, you are prayed for, and loved. Stay focused, stay positive. Lord willing, we shall see each other again for the next session. Look at the itinerary. We go live from Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time, and each day has its theme. Peace out.